0: Bon Appetit, Foodcast. I'm Adam Rapport. This week's episode, Deputy Editor Andrew Knowlton sits down with John T. Edge. John T. is the director of the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi, down there in Oxford. He's a scholar, a writer, and he just published his latest book, The Potlicker Papers, which goes deep on the complicated history of food in the South. So, Andrew and John, uh, they tackle this subject, uh, talk about what they grew up eating, how Southern food has changed over time, and its deep ties to politics in a social landscape that is as complex as it is delicious. And then, Food Director Carl Music and Senior Food Director Rick Martinez tell you how to make a rosé Aperol Spritz. But first, I want to remind you guys again about our special podcast series coming up, uh, the one where we are going to feature you this summer, we're launching something new on bonapetite.com, a new vertical, which we'll have more details soon. But for now, we need you to call in with all of your cooking questions. It's like, for instance, if you ever try to be a BA recipe that didn't quite go as planned, want to try a recipe that feels a little intimidating, we'll break it down for you. Maybe you're confused by a technique that you can never quite get right. Uh, we got you covered. So this is for your chance to call in and talk directly with our kitchen experts. And a chance to hear yourself on the Bon Appetit Foodcast. It's true. So, email Foodcast at gmail.com and we will be in touch to coordinate. All right, let's do this thing. Here's Andrew Knowlton and John T. Edge.
1: So, I want to welcome John T. Edge to the Bon Appetit Studio, Podcast Studio. Welcome, sir.
2: Thank you. Welcome. What does the
1: T stand for? I've always wondered that. Thomas.
2: Thomas. My father was John Thomas Edge Sr., and I'm John Thomas Edge Jr. And from birth, my mother didn't want me to be Little Johnny.
1: So, John T. instead. And that just, and you introduce yourself as John T. I do. I do. Around the South, people know John T. They know you for various reasons. I think, first and foremost, probably as director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is at the University of Mississippi in Oxford, where you. <laughs> where you reside. I do. But also author, uh, James Beard Award winner. I think you you still have a column at Garden and Gun. Oxford American as Oxford well. Oxford American.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And somebody I think we've crossed paths many times because we share something else in common is we're both from the fine state of Georgia.
2: Indeed. Where are you from? I'm from downstate from you, right around Macon, a little town called Clinton. It's just t 90 Okay. Have you ever had New Way Wieners? Uh huh. Yeah, those are good. I grew up that, on New Way. It's about twelve miles from my house. I love the like barest hint of Greek cinnamon in that in those in that chili on those dogs.
1: And one of those old school places that I think you and I like to document and talk about, and especially eat at. But we're here because you just finished your what is this sixth, seventh book? I,
2: I, yeah, that's a good. Twentieth, 20th, twentieth,
1: 20th. Uh, the Pot Liquor Papers, uh, which is kind of uh, as the byline uh, or the subtext of a food history of modern South. But mm-hmm. before we get to that, um, I always ask anybody from the South is, did you were you raised in a Southern family that prided itself on what was brought to the table?
2: I was raised in a family wherein my mother was a really great kind of workaday cooked. She made beautiful tomato soup, vegetable soup, um, with marrow bones in it, and and negotiated with the butcher to get her marrow bones. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was a really more curious cook. Like, he'd drive Buford Highway in Atlanta. Okay. Like, going through the low boy freezers looking for black chicken or whatever it might be. Right. So, those two poles were in my head. And this was in the 60s? 70s. 60s, 70s?
1: Yeah. Okay. 70s. Yeah. So,
2: I was born in 62. So, by, you know, when I'm starting to pay attention to food, it's the early 70s. And, okay. and we're driving Buford Highway, my father and I. Right. Um, and that unleashed a kind of curiosity for me about food. Uh-huh. Um, the other pole of that is I grew up about a quarter mile from a barbecue joint. So all those things swirled in my mm. head as a boy.
1: So even as a kid, um, you were into food. It was always a thing. Because, you know, there's this there's this thing I think a lot of people think that if you grew up in the South, and if you're like me, if you're a white kid who basically grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, in a town called Alpharetta, Georgia. Um, and it used to be all kudzu. Now it's all malls and stuff. Right. But... You know, I, I had a very suburban, probably not different, much different than California growing up in the suburbs. Like, you know, my mom would make pimento cheese once in a while. We'd go to a state fair and there'd be pork cracklins. Mm-hmm. You would go to Atlanta Braves baseball game and and you could buy pulled peanuts mm-hmm. um, on the street. But it wasn't this, I think, what people think of as this uh, like immersive Southern upbringing where It was a pig roast every weekend or my mom was making fried chicken in a cast iron skillet. Yeah. Was it
2: like that for you? I mean, I grew up out in the country. I mean, the, yeah. the, the town, and we use that term loosely, the town from which I hailed, it's like 50-75 people. Oh, wow. So, okay. you know, in many ways the things you're talking about, are really tensions between rural and urban right. and more so than they are right. north and south, right. you know. And so I grew up in that rural experience. I mean, I grew up um with venison stews on Saturdays. I grew up with fish fries on Friday. Um, I mean, I grew up running around barefoot, like quite literally. <laughs> I, think, I think us city kids would have made fun of you country kids back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I still got a chip on my shoulder about that.
1: Um, do you think at the time when you were growing up in the 70s in the South that you took for granted or knew what the South had to offer when it came to culinary-wise?
2: I mean, I think if you grew up in the 70s in the South, and you're paying attention, you realize you're from this really beautiful place mm-hmm. and you're also from this really tragic place. Right. Um, so those kind of poles mm-hmm. um, ground my belief in and at times anger with the South. Mm-hmm. Um, I did recognize the import of the food culture though, because my father kind of Drill that in my head. Like mm-hmm. I remember as a boy, him putting me up on a counter, um, sitting on stools at Crystal back when Crystal used mm-hmm. to cook to order, and my father was fascinated with the grill cooks at Crystal. Um, you know, as I said, I grew up really close to this barbecue joint, and I knew Miss Coulter, the owner, really well. I can picture her right now with the serious of gray curls atop her head, mm-hmm. like. All those experiences informed my life um, and my relationship to food. But if you listen to these, you, you notice I'm, I'm, I'm kind of describing encounters in restaurants outside the home. So my right. upbringing in the South was much about kind of public dining as it was what went on in our house. Uh-huh.
1: And and a lot of these places you're referring to are they
2: still in business or they've long gone? They've changed. I mean, it's one of the things about the South, and one of the things I try to get at in this book is that the South is not some bulwark of tradition. It's not some bunker where time has no imprint. Right. The passage of time has no imprint. Old Clinton Barbecue, which is the joint I grew up near, um, still has sawdust on the floors, Mm -hmm. um, but they've switched out the old flue brick pit um, for – you know one of these newfangled cookers right. um, crystal no longer cooks to order you know on a flat top griddle the south of my past is no more uh-huh. and i embrace those changes i mean one of the things that I, that I love about the south is is the dynamism of the region you know there are reasons to change if you grew up in the south right yeah that
1: <laughs> those are and and those things when you're writing about food in the south right. there there's always that you know it's It's a complicated matter. You know, there's a lot of, and I know you've addressed these publicly and and Mm -hmm. people have uh, brought you to task and they've certainly brought me to task. Mm -hmm. You're certainly more out there in terms of, you know, you've written books and you've talked about this. When you set out to do the potlicker papers, Mm -hmm. what was the goal? So basically for people I can set up, it starts your history kind of starts of the modern South, t- starts in the 50s mm-hmm. with kind of the sit-ins, the cafeteria sit-ins that went on during uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. And then kind of take us through the present day when you have this kind of boom of um, not only people, quote unquote, rediscovering their Southern roots, but also uh, Latinos and Southeast Asians moving into the South and redefining what Southern food is. Right. So. I guess that, that's how I understand it, but tell me a little bit about pot liquor. For those of us who don't know what pot liquor is, sure. I do. I think it's a clever
2: title for a book, so yeah. t- tell people what it is. So pot liquor is the liquid quite literally at the bottom of the pot. You cook a pot of greens, they're bobbing with ham hocks or pigtails, mm-hmm. you cook a pot of beans, and after you cook them, the liquid leavings at the bottom, the kind of distilled essence of that cooking process is the pot liquor. Mm-hmm. So it's both a food, and it's also a metaphor for me. If you're going to tell the story of the American South over a 60-year span, a book begins in 55 and ends in 2015, if you're going to boil it all down, you end up with the distilled essence, the pot liquor.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you, I guess when you were writing this book, did you... Um did you think about being a white guy from Georgia yeah writing what is essentially you know uh, a book about African American foods a lot of the s- southern foods that we yeah. have come to love and that now are in fine dining restaurants are uh African American foods
2: My work, um, both before this um, and through the Southern Pew Ways Alliance and through the Liquor papers, Mm -hmm. is an attempt to pay down debts of pleasure um, that you owe, that I owe, Mm -hmm. um, that we all owe to... Farmers and cooks and artisans whose names were too often lost, or if they were referenced, they were referenced by their first name and not their last. Mm -hmm. Um, This book is an act of kind of remembrance, Mm -hmm. um, a way of framing those lives. And it begins with Georgia Gilmore, a cook in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, as the bus boycotts begin, a cook who, in essence, steps into the civil rights movement and recognizes that the skills she learned in her kitchen, cooking for her family and also cooking for whites, that she could leverage those skills mm-hmm. to help fuel quite literally the bus boycotts, mm-hmm. frying chicken, bacon, cakes and pies. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I recognize my responsibility as mm-hmm. a white son of the South to tell a story that is more complete than it used to be, that mm-hmm. is more inclusive than it used to be, that helps people recognize that, that – Food drove change in the South,
1: mm-hmm. and I know you know having gone to the Southern Foodways Alliance symposium, uh, which is an annual symposium in yeah. Oxford in October usually, mm-hmm. and you know this SFA has always done a good job of highlighting the different backgrounds of the people from the South. We we can all do a better job, of course. Mm-hmm. You know I'm I'm all, I'm also asking questions that I constantly ask myself right. too, as somebody who writes about food and 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 loves the South. A lot of times we we write about stuff and, you know, we're not sure how it affects people or Mm -hmm. if you sit there and praise a chef who had nothing to do with that cuisine or, you know, it's very complex. I mean, how do you struggle with that or how have you changed over the years? I I,
2: I think I have a special burden on my shoulders. Um, You know, the Southern Foodways Alliance, since its inception in 1999, has said quite openly and frankly that the purpose of our organization Mm -hmm. is to document and study and examine the diverse food cultures of the changing American South, and in doing that to set a kind of welcome table mm-hmm. where where all where where all contributions are valued mm-hmm. um, and we've explicitly said from the beginning to break down barriers based on racism mm-hmm. like full stop like mm-hmm. that's it mm-hmm. and that's what brought me to this field. Like mm-hmm. I went to grad school to study racism and its impact on the on the American South. Somehow I found food as a way to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's been front and center from the very that's beginning. That's always been yeah. It's always yeah. been there. For me and for the SFA, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what has evolved for me is more nuance in understanding how to tell those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, And also a recognition that as the South diversifies, as Mm -hmm. America kind of realizes its demographic destiny, that the struggles of the future aren't always going to be black and white. They're going to be Latino. They're going Mm -hmm. to be defined in so many new and different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But from the beginning, you know, I have, and Southern Jewish Alliance has, recognized that racism is the great burden, the great taint, the great stain on our region and, and on America too. Yeah, um, that's the place to start, and mm-hmm. then you can go other places. And,
1: and it's interesting, uh, a place that is so conflicted with its past um, also happens to be, in my opinion, I think in most in most wise people's opinions, the richest kind of culinary region in the country. And I wonder why. You know you talk about this in the book a little bit is this um and this is this is when it gets difficult to talk about so- you know why things all of a sudden become a
2: trend, mm-hmm. and Southern food became a trend in popular culture. Um, I don't use Bon Appetit's name in the book, but I reference the glossy magazine of the moment, um, <laughs> heralding um, you know fried chicken on its cover, and it's right. obviously that's Bon Appetit. Right. Yeah. That was actually Hunter Lewis, who now is who now <laughs> down south
1: at at Southern Living, yeah. right in Cooking Light. Um, yes, that was, I remember that history very, very uh, that issue very clearly. Um, but I, I guess why do you think it is? that Southern food became such this national focus. Because, you know, it was funny for me. I used to have to lecture kids when I moved to New York City right? what pimento cheese was and how do you make it, right. and also pickled okra. And now I have people up here telling me how to make pimento cheese. right. right.
2: Well, the, the South has been cyclically hip over time, and, yeah. I, and I deal with this in the book, you know, the 1960s, And the Vogue interest in soul food in that moment is an interest in Mm -hmm. the food of working-class Southerners who move north Mm -hmm. to gain jobs in industry and move west to gain jobs in shipping. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Vogue for soul food, soul music, soul power Mm -hmm. um, is a refashioning of Black rural Southern expression into Northern industrial Um, soul expression mm-hmm. and, and that, that was but
1: that was led primarily by African Americans
2: correct led by African Americans right. interpreted though in that moment by people like Craig Claiborne who son of the Mississippi Delta goes to eat Chitlin's in champagne at right. Rooster's in Harlem comes back to report it Vogue does reporting right. in this moment in the Jim late 60s Jim Villis was a big guy Jim Villis for, yeah. Gene Barrow yeah. um, all these people report of the exotica uh-huh. um, in their midst and they're writing about the foods of rural black southerners who move north uh-huh. and in that moment soul food is a political construct uh-huh. it is it is a reclaiming of the foods of the south um, and refashioning them into something new it's soul food right um, in the '70s, um, Jimmy Carter's election in '76 right. heralds a new kind of South. Um, remember the the campaign slogan? It was "Grits and Fritz." Yeah. Fritz was Mondale. <laughs> Jimmy Carter was grits. Um, Carter was the you know son of peanut, peanut farming, farming family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 80s, Prudhomme steps to the fore. 90s, a cadre of chefs steps to the fore. Frank Stitt and his new guard in Birmingham, Alabama. There are all these moments when Southern food has been hip. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've reached the most recent kind of pinnacle in Mm -hmm. that. Um, And it's a moment, I think, too, when we see the South finally in Renaissance, Mm -hmm. Um, you see it in music. You see it in the music of the Alabama Shakes. And you see someone like Brittany Howard Mm -hmm. of the Alabama Shakes wearing a sundress, a beautiful black woman wearing a sundress with the state of Alabama tattooed on her arm. Something new is
1: being said now. Right, right. And you obviously have the whole Atlanta hip-hop scene that's in, Mm -hmm. in, you know.
2: Which what I just said was an echo of that. Yeah,
1: the TV show Atlanta. I I guess my question is how is – that movement that you described that happened in Harlem and maybe Chicago, that soul movement, different than the popularizing of, of Southern food, how is that different than, I guess, what I Id- idea is around the, like you said, the 90s into the 2000s where you had Sean Brock or you had Frank Stitt or mm-hmm. Annie Quintrano or whomever who, um, oh, a watershed chef. Um, Scott Peacock. Scott Peacock. Taking... You know, the Southern foods that traditionally were Southern foods, you know, mm-hmm. shrimp and grits and, and, and fried chicken. How was is, how is that different? Because that was mostly a white lead thing, mm-hmm. or the media was covering yeah. it in this way.
2: Right. So there's a portion, there's a, there's a, um, the section of my book that kind of pivots, and okay. it's a it's a section I titled gentrification, okay. and it is as new value is established for Southern food mm-hmm. um, and for the South in general, white chefs step to the fore to kind of lead. Um, and in many ways, these white chefs are building these kind of becalmed spaces. Their restaurants become a place where they build what they think of as a progressive space, mm-hmm. and they're reconnecting their work to farmers out in the rural precincts beyond their restaurant. People like Frank Stid, who opened Highlands Bar and Grill in 1982, yeah. um, you know that restaurant became a symbol of you kind know, of a. Birmingham that was free from the taint of being called Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a restaurant where Frank talks about having an Alabama epiphany in France and coming back to Alabama because people in Alabama respect crops in a way that's comparable to what you know you might idolize in France. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of leadership that stood um, offered that Bill Neal offered at Crook's mm-hmm. Corner. Mm-hmm. Um, those restaurants kind of built a future tent South and use restaurants as their base. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then in terms of
1: going back, you know, when you, when you talk about somebody like Edna Lewis, mm-hmm. who had a profound effect on many chefs throughout the South. Yeah. Um, across the nation. Across the nation. I guess my question to you is how do you think it, as somebody who's chronicled the South and been to so many restaurants, do you get African-American restaurateurs and chefs more involved and out there, um, I mean, I know that's a loaded question. It's a loaded that's, question, that's complex. But, it, it's,
2: it's a, but it's a good one. Like, you know, the, my book, um, the penultimate chapter of my book um, opens um, with Michael Twitty, the culinary historian, um, and closes with Mashama Bailey at the Gray in Savannah. And in the middle, you see Michael Twitty and Paula Dean engage in this battle. Right. Um, this battle about who owns Southern food. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, it's ugly to behold. Um, It really, truly is. Um, But I see in that struggle a great character, Dora Charles. Mm -hmm. Dora Charles, um, the cook who worked with Paula Deen for so long, Mm -hmm. published her own book, about three years ago, she's African American. She's African American, um, and Kim Severson did a beautiful profile of her in the New York Times. And more recently, when we staged an SFA symposium, we invited Dora Charles to come cook and featured her alongside all the other chefs. And she earns that status. She mm-hmm. earns um, that kind of uh, she earns that pedestal, mm-hmm. um, from my perspective, and that is. Where we need to stand mm-hmm. um, to recognize the import of Miss Charles and her life of service in the kitchen, the knowledge she has built, the muscle memory and genius she has leveraged. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not doing that yet. Right. Um, you know, we tend to categorize people into cooks and chefs. And in many times when we apply those sorts, we're too often. Um, denigrating working class cooks and we're denigrating people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the kind of what we need is, um, a kind of even playing field. What we need Mm -hmm. is equity and our respect for all the people who bring our food to the table.
1: Amen. You have a chapter about a lot of the, the barbecue boom that happened for whatever yeah. reason. And we talk about African-American chefs and you, you mentioned Rodney Scott, who, um, had a place in Hemingway, South Carolina, correct? Scott's barbecue. Um, and now that is closed, correct? No. Oh, it's, it's still, still open. open. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but he has his opened, father and uncle are running it now.
1: Okay. His father and uncle are uh, running that. And he has recently opened a, uh, a bigger one, uh, a little fancier one in, in Charleston, um, and I went a couple of weeks ago, and it as is as good as always. Right. Um, whole hog barbecue. Southern Foodways Alliance has done some amazing short films on mm-hmm. uh, regional barbecue. There's there's Helen from Helen's Barbecue just outside of Memphis. Um, you've done with Sam Sam Jones yep. uh, Skylight and um, his new place Jones Barbecue. I guess yeah, it's called Sam Jones Barbecue. Sam Jones place. Barbecue. Yeah. Um, what is what is your relationship to barbecue, and how is how is s f a not used barbecue, but sure. to explore the south, really?
2: Well, I mean, the thing that's interesting and I, and I grapple with this in the book is that you know ten years ago, people were wringing their hands and gnashing their teeth and wondering you know, when the last pitmaster would step out of the smoke, right? right so right. barbecue was imperiled. Barbecue, we all worried about it. Right. But what's happened over the last 10 years, you know, and this in some ways begins with Danny Meyer opening Blue Smoke in 2002, um, and it certainly kind of gains momentum with the rise of Rodney Scott and mm-hmm. Sam Jones. What's interesting about Rodney Scott and Sam Jones is their age. Mm-hmm. Um, they're young men, 30s, 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also young men who have recently opened two brand-new spaces. Right. Sam, 12 miles from his family joint, um, Skylight Inn in Aden, North Carolina, 12 miles down the road, not far from a Walmart, Sam has opened a $2 million barbecue cathedral. Right. Still doing it the traditional way, still doing it the old way, um, still doing a whole hog. And here comes Rodney Scott on King Street, you know, up the road from um, from the ordinary, right. up the road um, from the kind of you know mega central of of culinary destination that is Upper King Street. Right here comes Rodney Scott, who has opened his own barbecue restaurant with point of sale. Um, you know when you step up to the counter, yeah. not a scratch pad um, and alcohol. And alcohol, both both and of them open out with places in alcohol in parts of the South where that's blasphemous. Yeah. Um. But they're also they're operating modern barbecue restaurants right. where they'll be able to provide for their family, right. and you see a future in barbecue by right. way of those two men, one white, one black. Yeah. Um. That's one of the best illustrations of the possibilities of food in the South.
1: Right. And I and I think as as somebody who you know grew up in the South, and I think even if you're somebody who didn't grow up in the South, you have this nostalgia about authenticity in the South, and Mm -hmm. everything has to be in some ramshackled place off a dirt road, and that's just not reality. If you want a restaurant to uh, out-survive the person who founded it and pass it on, it's got to be economically you know, fruitful, right? right? right, Yeah. Right.
2: I mean, that, that's, you know, that to me is that kind of narrative. And I'm not saying you apply that narrative, but that want for the ramshackle barbecue joint is insulting to the family. Like, you know, the the family who runs this place is doing the best they can. And to want for some Southern experience wherein, um, you know, every roof is tar paper, um, you know, and, and, every ditch is um deep you know that's not what the south wants for itself no, or the I families know. who run yeah. these barbecue joints want for themselves
1: and and that's tough i mean i do I, I personally do that same thing when i go to france or i go to italy i want that little trattoria or i want that little bistro where the, the you know the, the they're kind of uh, surly to me you but know but what you want is honesty want right honesty. it's not it's yeah. not really yeah.
2: about it's not about poverty. It's not about this no, loose no, 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 no. appreciation. No, no. But yeah. but if you take that notion of the ramshackle barbecue joint to its yeah. logical conclusion, it's a want for what the French call nostalgia for the mud, like yeah. you know this kind of to roll around in in some kind of loose appreciation of poverty. And that's right. not what we want. We want something that feels real, that feels right. honest. Right. And that I would argue is right. what you want when you travel to France, and that's what people want when they travel to the American South. It's something that feels real, right. vernacular. The place. And, 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 I, and
1: I think, you know, if I remember driving, you know, through Alpharetta up to the baseball fields, there was this, this old country store in every sense of the imagination. It wasn't a shack, but it was certainly pieced together. And I don't know who owned it, but right. you know, they would fry cracklins in the back. They'd have beef jerky. They'd have boiled peanuts. You could even get your cola with boiled peanuts in in the soda. Right. And and now I went maybe five or six years ago, there's a chevron or whatever there. Mm-hmm. And there's no there's nothing that it used to be. Things change. I get that. That's fine. Sure. I, I I grapple with the past that I in my mind that I want. You that's know? that's human nature. Yeah, that is. You know? So you mentioned Buford Highway before, uh-huh. which is this amazing, uh, I don't know how many miles it is, 11 miles. It kind of runs uh, through Atlanta, so to speak. Yeah,
2: it's an arterial road heading north out of Atlanta. And and it's always been, since
1: I was a kid, Has always been lined with an international scene. I think whether it was Mexican, I remember going there with my parents, Mexican, mm-hmm. Indian, Southeast Asian, Asian. And, and it's kind of become this, symbol of the South that shows this melting pot of Mm -hmm. people moving in, opening restaurants, but also becoming this weird kind of exciting hodgepodge of Southern soul foods and the foods that they brought with them from wherever they came from. It's happening in Houston. Sure. Uh, It's it's happened in New Orleans. You talk about that in the book about the South isn't just black and white. There's, there's this Latino uh, influence that's happening and Especially if you go to Houston, you see the Southeast Asian. Mm-hmm. How exciting is that for you to see all these changes happening?
2: It's exciting it it's um And it's delicious. (laughs) And um, I think about a place like Crawfish Shack on Beaufort Highway. I know you've been. Yeah. Yeah. um, The owner um, who learned how to cook crawfish at a Baptist church convention (laughs) and refers to himself as a real Georgia peach. It's a first-generation Vietnamese immigrant, Uh right? So – that kind of cultural appropriation queers the whole conversation because he has appropriated Cajun crawfish and has developed a restaurant wherein he uses bread from New Jersey and fries um, and boils his crawfish in lemongrass scented broth. And when you ask for a drink, you can get, you know, squeezed-in-the-moment sugarcane juice. Mm-hmm. Like, all these cultures are coming into play in that mm-hmm. one restaurant, and it is Southern, it is Vietnamese, it is past, it is future. Mm-hmm. It's all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is really exciting, and it illustrates this reality. is like As the South changes, as America changes, because everything we've been talking about, you know, about tensions in the South and mm-hmm. possibilities in the South also apply to the whole of the country. Yeah, of course. But, you know, it, it, it means that we gain much in this process, I think. I don't Mm -hmm. think we lose much.
1: Right. So
2: where do you see
1: things going? You know, if if ten years from now you got to write, you know, uh, an addendum to the potlicker papers or something, where do you where do you hope you get to write what do, you, what do you think you'll write? The,
2: the, the multicultural piece of it is what I find most fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see it in, in your hometown of Atlanta, a town I lived in for a decade too, I think about a place like Heirloom Barbecue, mm-hmm. which I write about briefly in the Potlicker Papers. Um, you know, Jian Lee and her husband Cody, you know, she was a South Korean pop, pop star, star yeah. right? <laughs> and he claims both Tennessee and Texas in his upbringing, and they fashioned a barbecue joint um, you know, wherein the pickles are, are green tomato kimchi pickles. You know, there's gochujang on the pork shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of honest marriage um, of cultures and a reflection of Atlanta as a truly international city, mm-hmm. like that's what I'm most fascinated by. It's what I find myself writing about more and more. Right. Um, there's a great restaurant um, I like in Louisville, Kentucky called Con you know, when you think about Louisville as, you know, the place of um, whiskey, you think of it as a place where you can get, there must be country hams hanging by, by light posts in yeah. Louisville. Um, my favorite place to eat there right now is Canuevos. Um, husband and wife team, one from Monterey, another from Mexico City. Um, they do biscuits smothered with chorizo gravy. Uh-huh. Beautiful stuff. Yeah. It's both the South past and the South present. Yeah, and, that, and that's what makes it
1: so exciting that it is, I think when you grow up and you, you want things to, to to be a certain way how you remember them, but then you realize the things that you cherish the most are the things that have changed and, and progressed and, yeah. you know.
2: Well, I mean, the, you know, this book starts in 55 and ends in 2015. The pace of change in the South is crazy. Incredible, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. truly incredible. Compared to any other re- region of the country, the American South has changed more briskly than mm-hmm. any other. And mm-hmm. you can apprehend that by thinking and eating your way through the South. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. If, if I was to give
1: you a private plane, which I do not have. <laughs> I'll take it, though. Um, and you were you going to take me on your kind of ultimate Southern mm-hmm. flyby. Yeah. Where would we start breakfast?
2: Where would we have breakfast? Hmm. I like the coffee cup in Pensacola. Um, Pensacola, the, Florida. Pensacola, Florida. Wow. Coffee cup in Pensacola, Florida, and they have this dish called Nassau grits. Uh-huh. Um, that's basically just garnished a Helen back with chopped up this and that. Um, <laughs> um, I like that place. I like the I like the the lunch counter. I like the lean into that lunch counter. I like the vibe of that place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like too that you know we too often dismiss Florida as a nowhere, anywhere, and it's yeah. not. It, it's, no. uh, yeah.
1: I'm actually from Florida. I was born in Gainesville, Florida. Oh, yeah. Only lived there until I was three months, so I don't have any memories. But Florida is always one of those weird places. My people father was can't. born in
2: Crestview, Florida, not far from there. So, same thing.
1: Where would we go for, for lunch after that and then dinner?
2: Okay. Um, you're going to make
1: a lot of people angry by us,
2: Yeah, you know? I know. <laughs> but these are, we didn't determine these are my favorite places no, 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 to go. No, no, this, this is just where, where you I would take go. me.
1: Where would you take me? And we got a plane, so why not? We got a
2: plane. <laughs> okay. Um, You mentioned this place earlier. Um, and... My son just got his driver's license. He's sixteen. Ooh, he's got a car. He's got insurance. He's got a girlfriend. Like <laughs> he's sixteen, man, in every way. Um, and I asked him, I was like, "What's the first road trip you want to take?" And he said, "I want to go to Helen's. Um, ah. He wants to go to Helen's Barbecue in Brownsville, Tennessee, um, where Helen Turner basically, you know, is." in control of two fires. One in the back of her um, restaurant. One is a fire where she's breaking down the wood into coals and cooking them down. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other is some shoulders over on the side, both in kind of rudimentary brick pits. Um, That sandwich capped with slaw and drenched in sauce dished to you by Helen – um, is an experience that everyone should have, and and it's also a humbling experience for um, people like us of our gender, um, because this woman um, is fierce. Um, this woman is doing it all by herself with no help from anyone else, and doing it beautifully. And that sandwich is is yeah. an ideal road trip sandwich. And if
1: you can get her to laugh too, she's got yeah. quite. She's got a good. She laugh. She does. She's yeah. got a
2: beautiful cackle. Yeah, um, she really does.
1: And then after after barbecue, where would okay,
2: we go? Okay, so we need to go to a different part of the South. Where would we go for dinner? I would love to go to Bowen's Island mm. for roasted oysters. Um, Robert Barber, the proprietor and run for lieutenant governor of South Carolina, came really close. Um, he's a preacher. Um, I still remember when he won the Beard Award, America's Classics Award, um, a few years back, he showed up in white shrimp boots and his tux um, (laughs) as a way to pay homage to the men and women with whom he grew up who walk into the pluff mud and pull out oysters um, for them to steam at Bowen's. Um, It's a beautiful place. and, and. they, is, had a, they had
1: a tragic fire, though, correct? They did. They had yeah. a tragic
2: fire. They've rebuilt. They had another small fire and rebuilt. Wow. You know, it's... um and yet that place thrives right. um, and there's no better place to illustrate the connection between you know the water and, and a restaurant than like literally their john boats going out right. just you know moments from the dock there to pull in their oysters um, and barber is such a welcoming soul and so he's so cognizant of a lot of the things we've talked about in this podcast black white relations um, you know he is a cognizant son of the south doing his best
1: and then since we're not flying the plane, uh-huh. where would we go have whiskey?
2: What, what, what bar would we mm. go drink whiskey? Because that's pretty much the only thing I really care about. You know, I just got back from New Orleans, um, and I missed one stop that I love to go to in New Orleans on this trip. This is Saturn Bar. You ever been? Yeah, I've been in Saturn Bar. <laughs> I have their calendar. I try to get their yeah, calendars. The calendars yeah. yeah, that was that was. I mean, when I lived in Atlanta, um, like all the bartenders at the yacht club in Atlanta, which was my local in Little Five Points, would always use um, Saturn Bar calendars. That was the mark of coolness. Mm. Um, still is, as far as I'm concerned. But the Saturn Bar um, on St. Claude Avenue um, is. Um, this avant-funk masterpiece of a place. It's an odd um, place, isn't it? You know, there's, there are neon um, lights above that were modeled on, inspired by satin booster rockets. There's folk art all over the walls. It was painted by an itinerant artist um, who traded drinks for, um, for his art. There's a room in the back with a little gallery up above where they used to have boxing matches, and you'd stand in the gallery to watch the boxing matches. Like... And, you know, there's every taxidermy to everything um, on the walls. It, you know, I remember one time I was in there and a guy came in with a weed whacker and tried to trade <laughs> O'Neal, the bartender, the weed whacker for a drink. And then to prove it was worth a drink, plugged the damn thing in and went, it works. see? Um, At it's two great in bar. the morning, right? No, this <laughs> was in the afternoon. That's even worse or better.
1: Oh, uh, that sounds like a good trip. Um, John T. Edge, thank you for stopping by. Uh... Everyone, the potlicker paper's out now, a food history of the modern South, and nobody better to tell that story than John than T. Edge, I think. Thanks, um, But sir. before we let you go, we always do our lightning round questions.
2: Oh, I thought we just did that.
1: No, 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 no. This is this is, this, <laughs> this is where it gets difficult, my friend. All right, so you, you have to choose one. Okay. All right. And I kind of, you know, I thought about you when I was writing these out. Uh, let's start easy. Uh, biscuits or cornbread? Biscuits. Chick fil A or Waffle House? Waffle House. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> that was easy. Tamales or tacos? Tamales. Wow, interesting. Is that is that is that the Delta connection yeah. for you? Yeah. Yeah. Flask or koozie? Flask. Wow. He's Don't whiskey, drink much man. beer. Collards or okra? Damn. <laughs> I knew there were one I would get them at, and this collards or okra. How are
2: the how is the okra prepared?
1: Let's say they're fried okra versus kind of braised stewed collards. Okra, nice. Ice tea or Coca Cola.
2: Mexican Coke.
1: No American Coke from Ice Atlanta, tea. Georgia. Ice tea. Win Dixie or Piggly Wiggly. Piggly Wiggly, because I love Clarence
2: Saunders. It's, did you have both? Story. Did you have both growing up? I did. You did. Plus, I don't like anything with the word Dixie in it. Mm. Dixie's a bad word. Dixie's a bad word. Um, Dixie's a bad legacy. Put right. it that way.
1: Alabama Shakes or St. Paul and the Broken Bones? Alabama Shakes. I like them both, but yeah. Popeyes or Bojangles? Popeyes. REM or Almond Brothers? REM. And last but not least, the question we ask everybody, and it's always tough asking a Southerner, is butter or olive oil? Hmm. You can say pork fat if you want.
2: No, 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 no. What we live with and cook with every day, it's olive oil.
1: It's olive oil. Yeah. Thank you, John T. Edge. Thank you, Andrew Milton.
3: All right, Rick, let's talk about rosé.
4: Rosé,
1: the drink of summer.
3: Last summer, we were talking about frosé, which was a thing that no one had heard of. And then two weeks later, it was like... Boom. Basically, you could get it at Target.
4: Yeah. Okay. It's really weird because I actually saw it. I saw it in Maine. I saw it uh, in uh, uh, Provincetown, just... Randomly everywhere all summer.
3: Yeah, it was a great kind of combination of the slushies were having a Mm -hmm. moment. Rosé was having a moment. And then it had a great name. Yeah. Really, (laughs) like, that name said it all. So, froze. we had a great success with last year. Totally. Great recipe. It was, I think, our number Number one one. recipe of 2016. Yeah. So, when our esteemed editors of Bon Came to you this year and said we want more rosé. We, what did you say?
4: I said, well, you know, I'm totally down for it. But I mean, do we really want to try and, you know, repeat the the success of last summer? And can we? Like, what is the next drink? And is it rosé? Like, is is rosé going to have a moment, or is there another thing that we should be looking at? Uh, and they were really, really into another rosé drink.
3: Right, because you came to me at that point and said, Webb really wants to do this, a rosé cocktail, something, something. And I was like, really? No, I'm I'm done. I'm over rosé. I don't think it's going to be a thing. Right. And then they were like, pretty please. Right. I was like, okay, fine.
4: (laughs) And I think what they wanted in the beginning was something around a a rosé lemonade. Mm, That's right. And I don't know, that just didn't, the combo just didn't work for me. Um, And... I kind of struggled with it a little bit, like what is what is gonna top Rose uh Froze, um, or at least, you know, be something that would be different enough but still rose for yeah, the summer. Sister wife. Sister Sister wife. Um and I don't know why. Actually, uh I had a drink that had passion fruit in it and mm. it kind of made me you know, think why why don't we have more passion fruit in our life? because I love passion fruit juice, yeah. um, and I started thinking about, you know, tropical drinks and summertime and and a beautiful day like today, ninety five degrees, what I want to be drinking. <laughs> and thought, you know, passion fruit and rose. I think I think that's a combo that could work,
3: yeah, I think it does work. And the passion fruit, so I had never had a fresh passion fruit in my life until I went to Costa Rica this oh. past March, and it was like a completely mind blowing experience. Um, but those, there are those cardboard um,
4: boxes, yeah, yeah, Sarah's, Sarah's right? Yeah,
3: um, and they're pretty easy to find. Yeah, they're
4: pretty available nationally. Um, and
3: what is it about that passion fruit flavor that was like? What did that deliver?
4: Um. I just feel like inherently tropical flavors like pineapple, passion fruit, mango just kind of scream summer. And you want them to be ice cold. You want to be drinking them around a pool. And I think that some rosés actually have, you know, in addition to the berry notes, they also have some of those tropical notes. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that combo would, would really work well together and just scream summer.
3: And it's got that enough um, acidity without the bitterness. It's like a right. really good sweet and sour. Totally. kind of flavor, whereas, yeah, it's kind of unique that way.
4: Yeah. The other great thing about it, too, and this was actually a pretty big consideration, is that it's clear, at least the the passion mm. for juice that you get in the box. And so it wasn't going to cloud up the rosé because I didn't want something that kind of looked opaque or, you know, kind of weird in your glass. Right. So... um 'Cause
3: pink is also pink is beautiful pink, I mean, and it's yeah. also so in.
4: It's so in. You just gotta
3: keep keep it pink. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, let's just tease this out a little bit. But if I if I go to my supermarket and I go to where the like the box the drinks and the juices are in, in not in the cold section, but in those in the aisle, and they don't have passion fruit, what am I gonna do?
4: Um I think uh, pineapple is a good sub. Um I would say that mango is also a good sub. Mm-hmm. It's, you're going to get the cloudy effect, mm-hmm. um, but I think the flavors will work well. Um, I and think would you
3: add like another squeeze more of citrus juice just to offset the sweetness?
4: Yeah, so there's uh, there's actually lime juice in the recipe. Um, again, playing off that sort of more tropical flavor than I think a lemon would deliver. But yeah, so I think you just kind of play with the uh, the amount of acid in there. Um, Mango is going to be a little sweeter, so you might want to reduce the amount of sugar that that uh, we put in this as well. Um, but, you know, the other nice thing is that the uh, the Aperol kind of balances out that, that sweetness. Right. Which I really like a lot.
3: So, okay, so keep going. So we've got the passion fruit, and you just brought up Aperol, which, again, the Aperol spritz had a huge moment. Huge moment. And it's still... Having a moment. Totally. Like this this is like one of those things where classic drinks become popular and then it, they just go back to being like great classics. <laughs> right.
4: And I didn't to be honest, I didn't actually know if Aperol would work with rosé. I mean, my first thought was probably not. And then um and the whole the whole reason why I actually thought about Aperol in the first place is because my housemates in Fire Island love Aperol and rosé. And it's, you know, we put in our drink order at the beginning of, of each mm-hmm. season and literally cases of both. Really? And I mean, they completely drink them separately. And I thought, well, I mean, let's I want to kind of put them together. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, you've got like this really great color. Uh, and then the idea of like a sweet tropical drink balanced out with the the bitterness of the aperol. I thought, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try it and see what happens.
3: I mean, it's 10:30 in the morning, but I'm like super thirsty. <laughs> I'm looking at this iced coffee, going like, I want my rose aperol spritz. Well, finish right. your
4: coffee and we'll go back and mix them.
3: <laughs> all right, so we've got passion fruit juice, the aperol, uh, lime juice, and sugar, and that just all goes in a pitcher.
4: Just stir together. Just stir it up. Yeah,
3: and then any pointer, and then the only other ingredient is the rosé. Any pointers on like what to look for? I just feel like there's so so many different. Like sometimes you get a rosé that's like in a, a pale peachy orange and some roses are like, you know, practically red. Right. What did do, did you find like it matters or
4: um it does. I feel like uh well the first thing is sparkling rose. Oh right. Uh, it's because sparkling. it's a spritz. And uh that was the other thing that I was thinking too, is I you know, to kind of change up the the rose. I don't think people are really buying the the sparkling rosés. Yeah. And it's a shame because, I mean, you know, what makes rosé better? Bubbles. <laughs> um, and also, I think, you know, with spritzes, you know you usually top it off with a little bit of uh, seltzer. Right. And I wanted to cut out that step because why dilute anymore? Um, so I think, you know, look for sparkling. It'll definitely work with um, uh, a still rosé, and that's totally fine. And in
3: that case, would you just... To add a little seltzer, just add a little the, splash, yeah. yeah,
4: for some bubbles. but um, but get a sparkling rose. They're delicious. Um, they tend to be a little bit fruitier, I mm-hmm. find, um, which is nice. and I think that that also plays well with the uh, the passion fruit. Um, I tend to look for uh, a darker color. I feel like the the lighter ones are a little bit drier, uh less fruity. And mm-hmm. I think you really, you know, i'm I'm imagining drinking this pool side. Uh, a couple of ice cubes, and I want something that's gonna, you know, that's gonna just hit me. Right. Um, so you want something that's pretty bold, and you know, feel free to, you know, talk to the your the guy at the, your local wine shop and ask him and and taste them. You know, a lot of these wine shops will have, uh, particularly now in the summer, rosé tastings. Right. Um, ask him to crack open a, a sparkling rosé for you.
3: I love it. I think people don't think of wines as Mix, you know, mixers in a cocktail. So that's super fun. And tell always, you know, tell your tell your wine guy, this is what I'm planning to do with it. You know, it's not I'm not drinking it out of hand necessarily, but I'm gonna I'm gonna blend it. All right. So I guess the bottom line is, if you liked rosé, you will love rosé apérol spritz.
4: Oh my god! And actually, quite a bit easier. It's just literally like pour and stir.
3: I like it. Yeah. So sometimes the web team is right, I guess.
4: Sometimes they're right. So I should probably start thinking about 2018, Rose. Yeah. What's it gonna be? Oh God, I don't know. I have a year. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. Thanks for making me thirsty.
4: Yeah. Right, let's go make some.
1: The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wartzman and Carrie Polis, and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's, with additional music by Nathaniel Wartzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.